Thanks, Suzanne, for that. Well, someone once said that life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And for some of us, it might feel like life's a box of chocolates. For others, it might feel like life's a box of hurdles, responsibilities, problems. Uh, If you're going through a really tough time, it might be life's like a box of hand grenades. You never know when it's going to explode. If your life is like mine, issues don't come in sequential or alphabetical order, predictable order even. It might be managing the expectations of your boss. At the same time, you're having a difficult conversation with a friend. You're addressing a developing habit with a child that you've noticed. Car insurance is due, registration. What do I think about the new workplace inclusion policy? What am I on this week at church again? What about the latest announcement from the Premier and the way my workplace and school is handling that? I wonder how my friend's getting on with the last round of chemo. To say that life is like a box of chocolates might be a positive spin on what can be a noisy, busy, lonely, sad, or just a get-through-the-day period of our life. When life is coming at us like that, in this sense of randomness, lots of questions and issues being raised, how do we keep the main thing the main thing in life? What do we need? Do we need a thousand self-help books to answer life's millions of questions? No, Christians are blessed by a voice that cuts through the noise. Life's many and varied questions can be met with the one voice of a reliable friend. One reason it's so good to be a Christian well, today's sermon is more like a Q&A that reflects the nature of Mark chapter 12. Um, six different topics raised seemingly at random, a bit of a hodgepodge, different issues raised and addressed. And Jesus raises, uh, addresses those questions raised to him with marvellous answers that point us to the things that matter most each time. His answers will involve first a warning, second displaying his wisdom, thirdly knowledge, fourth his clarity, fifth, his self-revelation, sixth, inspiration for genuine piety. And the life lessons, as you look, if you look down your outline, really key matters in life where he keeps us focused on things of himself, Father and the Son and the Kingdom. And so the message about what matters most comes firstly as a warning, to be on the right side of the Son. Now, this picks up and concludes what we were looking at last week in Mark 11, where Jesus is distressed by Israel's waywardness. He symbolically curses a fig tree to show from Jeremiah's prophecies and from the Psalms that you're like a fig tree, a withered fig tree, Israel. You're meant to be fruitful, but you're not, and judgment is coming to you. Watch out. You're rejecting the very king who comes into his royal city. And the first verses of chapter 12 here are concluding that warning section with a parable. It answers the question, is it okay to be a Jew who rejects Jesus as the Messiah? That's how it comes through to us. Is it okay to be a Jew who rejects Jesus as the Messiah? Look together with me from verse 1. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. That's, that's the rates. That's the rent. That was the done thing. That's fair enough. 
But, verse 3, unbelievably, they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. That outrageous behavior we saw last week has begun, and it gets progressively worse until verses 5 to 6 we read, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some of them they beat, others they killed. And we're thinking the prophets of the Old Testament here. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. And listening to the parable, we're thinking, no, don't send your son, don't do it. But yes, he sent him last of all, saying, they will surely, they will respect my son. Surely their rebellion has limits, right? But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The injustice of the parable is meant to get under our skin. It's meant to get our blood boiling. That's what parables do. And Jesus uses them with the teachers of the law to help them recognize the rightness of the principle before realizing that they're actually being hooked at the same time. And it's too late for them to get out of their sense of culpability. Verse 9, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This goes back to Jeremiah's prophecies that this was going to happen. Now it's happening. It goes back to the Hosanna Psalm, Psalm 118. The Hosanna's mentioned, but also this cornerstone and this rejection of the sun. That many will stumble over this one, verse 11. One, even though he's fully endorsed by the Lord, that he's sent by the Lord. And verse 11 says, the Lord has done this. Hosanna to this important though rejected stone. God's salvation is, verse 11, marvellous. Even though it hasn't been seen by all, and some have tripped over it. But rather than admit guilt, the reflex human tendency so often in our culture is to deflect blame, we see it in ourselves as well, and to keep God out. And so we see in verse 12, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him. They're not listening to him, they're wanting to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Is it okay for Jews to deny Jesus, reject Jesus as the Messiah? Well, just this week I received a newsletter from Jews for Jesus. Uh, they are a ministry that help Jews to see that Jesus is the Messiah they're waiting for. He's come. And so in the report, one inquirer, Richard, is a retired law professor in Florida. And so here is this professor, this Jew, who's looking into this more perfect law of Jesus, wanting to believe, being teased along in this knowledge of Jesus, but wanting to be sure that Jesus fulfills all the messianic prophecies. And so today, Jews are still coming to Jesus, and may God open Richard's eyes and his ears to Jesus. For the Old Testament and the New Testaments alike issue the stern, kind warning to be on the right side of God and God's Son. Dishonour God's Son and you dishonour the Father. Crown him, crown him, Lord of all. Issue number two that comes Jesus' way in verse 13. A principle that says, honour God and give human authorities their due. Again, in the noise and confusion of life, 
another principle to guide us. Here we see normally opposing Jewish parties overcoming their differences to deal with Jesus as a common threat, like Liberal and Labour Party agreeing on something for political reasons. But rather than listen to him, they want to trap him with his words. Verse 13. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. They're buttering him up, lathering him. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are, but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? The trap is set. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy, we read. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Great question. Why are you trying to trap me? If only they'd reflect on it humbly. Still, Jesus goes along with them. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. It's that same word as the word marvellous in verse 11. Amazed, marvelling. Jesus cuts through another question. He avoids a trap of saying he's either pro-Jew and anti-Roman or he's anti-Roman and pro-Jew. Or pro-Jew, you know what I mean. Pro-Jew and anti-Roman or pro-Rome and anti-Jew. At the very same time, he feeds those who are listening to him. So there's, there's gold in there. His wisdom here is helping us navigate our way through complex issues where we have overlapping dominions, human rulers, And God's ruled, sharing, space. And so we can obey speed limits, we can pay our taxes, that's simple. But applying this principle isn't always easy either. It's a challenge when we're faced by safe schools programs or Black Lives Matter activism to try to navigate what's going on here. Questions about euthanasia and abortion and gender and whatever's coming next. Uh, We can pray for Christian politicians and doctors teachers who live with some of these tensions and the threatening forces if they go God's way. We have brothers and sisters all around the world who suffer because their Caesar is opposing their God, our God. The next question, issue three, what should we think about an afterlife? How does life after death affect how we live now? Seems a bit random, doesn't it, that the, the issue is coming, but Jesus provides a great lesson in response to each. There's that saying going around our culture that we almost take for granted that it's true. Well, you only live once, you might as well this or that. This false assumption has disastrous effects on society, particularly individualistic society where even generational responsibility isn't a thing. You don't even live through a legacy because of your independent kids and grandkids in Australia so often. The Sadducees here have a go at mocking the reality of a post-life situation with a bizarre case study. They're trying to show how ridiculous resurrection is. Let's take a look at their attempt from verse 18. Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. If we jump to verse 23... 
after marrying these different men, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Snicker, snicker. Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, an awesome reality waiting each of us, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. It's a bad mistake to think of this life as the only or the primary life. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die, right? That's it, game over. It's hard to think of many worse false assumptions to live with. And notice Jesus' high estimation of the Old Testament as a, an authority for life. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living And when the Bible says that God is the God of Abraham, verse 26, he means that God is still the God of Abraham. He's still Abraham's God. That Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are very much alive. We saw evidence of that just recently. We saw Moses and Elijah very much alive with Peter, James, and John through the living revelation window of Mark chapter 9. NASA spends millions, billions of dollars looking to see if there's other life forms in our universe besides just us here and now. Another realm. Well, Scripture tells us there is life beyond what we see on earth. There is another realm with angels and demons. Countless humans, many assumed to be deceased and lifeless, live on. Abraham lived some 3,800 years after he left this earth. And so too will you after your body gives way. And so a much more significant question than how old are you is whose are you? Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, Jesus, Peter, Paul, Luther, Calvin, Bonhoeffer, Billy Graham, now much more alive than ever. For God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Let us not be badly mistaken by assuming life is short, when in truth it does not end. That's the great problem for our lost friends. They can be met with a wonderful gift we offer them when we bring them into contact with the gospel. Through the gospel, God enacts an eternal transfer And so if we aren't hiding God's place in our life from our friends, God could be calling them through our testimony. Come, follow me, live. The Sadducees' ignorant question is met with a knowledgeable answer that cuts through much of our life's busyness and noise. Eternal life, things of eternity. In the next scene, scene four, this time a very good meaning of life question is raised and met with a brilliantly clear answer. Verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He's emphasizing the oneness of God. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. Deuteronomy 6. The second is this, love your neighbour as yourself, Leviticus 19. There is no commandment greater than these. But isn't this Old Testament law, some of us might wonder, isn't love for God and neighbour superseded now by the new covenant? Don't we live by grace now and it's no longer commanded that we love God? Well, the answer is much better than that. In the new covenant and the new testament, we have all the more reason to love God all the more grace and spiritual power to love God. Loving God is not a mere duty. It's what our lives are for, and he empowers us for that purpose. It's the first fruit of the Spirit. It's the chief Christian virtue to love, love God, love the church, and then to love our fellow man. Well said, teacher, the man replied, verse 32. I don't know if he thinks he's one to judge, but he's well said. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart and so on is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. To love God will be to love the Son, the kingdom's king. This man is circling the truth. He's not far from the kingdom because the loving king of kings stands before him lovingly teaching him. Here I am. The king of love my shepherd is, whose goodness faileth never. I nothing lack if I am his, and he is mine forever. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's nice to notice, isn't it? Jesus isn't afraid of the world's questions. I like that. We don't need to be afraid of their questions either or get in a frenzy about trying to answer questions. We don't need to be embarrassed or defensive. Even though practice helps us answer questions, we don't need, uh, we won't answer questions as well as Jesus does. But we will always be trusting in the one who wonderfully was unthreatened. He was wonderfully unthreatened. To love God and your friends with simple words will be a more powerful witness than a quick, a quick wit or a debater's tongue. Just love God and love your friends and be open with them. In episode 5, Jesus raises and answers his own question, verses 35 to 37. This time Jesus asks the question. So whether life is like a box of chocolates, hurdles or hand grenades, whatever, Knowing who Jesus is cuts through it all. And so a better life saying to leave church this morning with than life is like a box of chocolates would be that life is a walk with the Lord Jesus. Life is a walk for the Lord Jesus. But Jesus raises raises the most central matter for life, that he is the Lord. Get that right and everything follows. Verse 35, while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord, that's one Lord person, said to my Lord, that's a second Lord person, sit at my right hand. So we have two Lord persons sitting until I put your enemies under your feet. Lord person one is acting for Lord person two. 
You might need to read that again at home. David himself, verse 37, calls him Lord. How then can he, the Lord, be David's son? The large crowd and churches like ours ever since listened to Jesus with delight. Jesus getting them thinking about his divinity. The oneness of God made clear earlier. Now the two-ness, the plurality of God clarified here through this prophecy. This triune relationship of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's forever been true before the creation of the world. It was hinted at in the Old Testament, let us make man in our own image, plural. A spirit hovering over the waters, God speaking, and a speaking agent, the word, bringing creation into being. What is hinted at in the Old Testament is expanded upon in the New Testament as God the Son, God himself, addresses us as one of us. What a great provision. What a great plan. And so we can listen to such spectacular truths, verse 37, with a similar delight. How can this be? Such wonders are studied by those who delight in them. I wonder if that's you. On that day, it was a large crowd. Today, I pray with the help of God's Spirit, this delight is yours as you meditate on these things. One of my favourite verses, Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. We can love God with our minds and, and contemplate these things. Number six, piety. This question and answer session of Mark 12 finishes with Scripture's simple call to reject godless religion and to pursue genuine piety, godliness. As he taught, verse 38, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces. But they will, verse 40, be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts. But a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few pence. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. I find this story both beautiful and very confronting and challenging. What would a similar devotion for us look like? We receive the kingdom of God like children... And so this isn't a way that this woman was earning her way into heaven, and it won't be a way that we do the same. It's more a love response to God. It's a dependence on him. There's, again, a readiness to relinquish here that we didn't see from the rich man in earlier chapters. But there's also a broader readiness to entrust herself to God. All bets are placed on God. And so you might begin praying, as I walk with Jesus... What might some next steps be for me? As I grow as a disciple, what will the next stages look like? I mentioned there are lots of opportunities here in your church family and serving is a way to grow, but it's not all about that. It may be discipling someone. It may be being discipled by someone older in the faith. Some of you might feel like you're already putting in your two copper coins, and some of you are, I would say. 
And so it may, to be inspired by this widow, may just be to press on and know that your way of loving God is noticed by him. To just keep your eyes on Jesus and to keep delighting in him. Life is like a box of chocolates. I'm not so sure about that. But life for a Christian is a walk with the Lord Jesus. His voice is very helpful and he'll lead us one step at a time. Well, let's pray. Our great God, in this chapter, we're led to keep the Lord Jesus and his kingdom before our eyes. To have the voice of our king in our ears. And as we do, may the competing and confusing voices lose much of their influence and appeal. May we love you and your love for us. May we love your word and the guidance it offers. May the voice in our heads be the voice of you, our good and kind saviour who speaks words of truth into our hearts. May we savour the thought that you are not the God of the dead but of the living. And so we pray as those who are yours, now and forevermore yours. Amen.